you train really hard and then you do everything you can to rest and recover so you can train hard again. This is why the best athletes, their existences tend to look quite monkish. Now, we know that the mind functions very much like the body. It too performs best when it is highly stimulated and challenged and when it then has the space to rest and recover. The question is, how do you have your mind rest and recover? And that's what we're gonna address today. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. Uh, Really looking forward to today's conversation. It's always a pleasure to be recording with you. Today, we are going to talk about rest and recovery. Uh, What that means, depending on what you do and uh, how you can optimize your rest and recovery to feel good and do good, be it in work or in life. There's been a lot of stuff, broadly I'll put it under the umbrella of stuff out there on this topic, and uh, we figured we'd try to cut through, cut through a lot of the noise and hopefully provide you all with a bit of signal. Yes, the important and oft-neglected rest part of the stress plus rest equals growth, which is the growth equation. Before we get there, though, Brad, just a reminder that the reason you are not hearing ads for maybe a magic supplement to improve your recovery or the latest gadget that will guarantee you, you know, that you'll get eight hours of sleep is pretty simple. We don't do those ads because they don't align with what we're trying to do at the growth equation. Instead, what we do is we're member supported. So we have a Patreon group. If you want to check that out and join, you get all sorts of cool things like a monthly um, book club, quarterly mastermind groups, um, early access to these podcasts, and also a Slack channel and all sorts of good stuff. So if you want to sign up, head on over to patreon.com slash the growth equation and join us. You forgot, Steve, also signed copies of our latest book. So whenever we get a new book coming out, y'all will get it on the first day and it will be individualized and signed, which leads us to the next way to support us and go deeper on our work, which is to read our books. Uh, they are our finest work. And if you prefer to listen, you're an auditory learner, here you are listening to the podcast, you can also listen to our books on Audible or wherever audiobooks are sold. Our most recent two books are The Practice of Groundedness by yours truly, Brad, and Do Hard Things by Steve. So if you enjoy the podcast and you haven't yet read or listened to the books, um, we are almost 100% confident that you'll dig them uh, because on the podcast, As great as our editing team is, we're still a first draft. Our books go through multiple drafts. Uh, So definitely check those out as well. All right. So let's dive into this week's topic, rest and recovery. So here I think maybe the best way to do it is define what in the world we mean by rest and recovery in terms of um, this stress plus rest equals growth equation. 
So we'll start with the most simple and concrete example, and then from there we'll uh, we'll go out into the world that's a little bit more ambiguous, but also the world that most people occupy. So the simple and concrete example is you take an elite athlete who is training really hard. And if all they do is train, 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 and they don't rest and recover, their bodies break down. Their muscles tear, they become injured, they become ill. So in order for an athlete to get better, they have to train hard, but then they also have to rest and recover. And you can think of rest and recovery as everything that supports hard training and allows the body to adapt to it. So when you sleep, all kinds of growth-promoting hormones are released. When you eat food, that food both is used to build torn muscles back up. It's also used to fuel future efforts. So eating is a big part of it. You often hear about pro athletes doing hot, cold exposure, wearing compression stockings, um, all sorts of other things, getting massage work, lymphatic massage. The merits of these things are debatable, but they all have the same purpose or stated purpose in mind, which is to help the body recover from a hard effort, adapt to it, and get ready to go for the next one. So in athlete's life, it's pretty simple. You train really hard, and then you do everything you can to rest and recover so you can train hard again. This is why the best athletes, their existences tend to look quite monkish. They train, they eat, they sleep, perhaps they engage in some of these other modalities, and then they rinse and repeat. Now, we know that the mind functions very much like the body. It too performs best when it is highly stimulated and challenged, and when it then has the space to rest and recover. The question is, how do you have your mind rest and recover? And that's what we're going to address today. All right. So I think it's important here to also delineate, you can look at this at kind of a macro scale, which would be mind rest and recover, you know, by taking a vacation or a longer period of time. And you can look at this on a very micro scale, meaning, hey, I just spent an hour and a half doing deep focus work, and I'm going to take a 10, 15 minute break. So we can kind of go through both of them. But I figured what, what would be helpful is just to start with some of the tools and tactics that actually help us uh, restore from a mental standpoint. Number one, I think the, you know, the one I use most often is getting up and moving around. And there's some wonderful research that shows that even a short walk can be beneficial and restorative. Why? Because when you're going for a walk, you're essentially doing something automatic. You don't have to think. You don't have to think about it. It's so ingrained that it's it comes naturally. But it occupies like part of your brain and allows the other part to kind of like rest, restore, and he also sometimes wrestle with what you just uh, handled. So there's some wonderful work that shows that. Taking a short, you know, 15-minute walk, 20-minute walk helps with creativity. This is boosted even more if you take that walk and you go from walking around your office to walking outside in nature, which is, again, one of the more important rest and recovery things that we could talk about. One of the reasons, there's a couple of reasons that they think nature helps restore. One of it is because it literally can change your focus and your attention. So there's some wonderful research that shows that 
when we're just in the presence and looking around at trees and I'll just call it green stuff or natural stuff, we adopt a more soft gaze versus when we're looking at more man-made objects and structures, we tend to adopt a hard or a harsh gaze. And just that difference allows us to um, kind of uh, restore our, our mental faculties um, and not be uh, drained from, you know, focused attention work that often occurs. All right. So let's, um, let's step back for just a second. I'm really glad that you went to nature and natural recovery. And why don't we do two broad categories? The first is behaviors that just about everyone engages in by nature of being a human being. And the second are things that um, not necessarily everyone engages in that are really helpful for rest and recovery. So in that first bucket, I'm going to put eating and sleeping. And we should spend a little bit of time talking about that. So your mind cannot function well if you don't sleep and if you don't eat. Very, very simple. And again, we'll, we'll talk about sleep hygiene and, and eating in a minute. And then under that bucket of uh, behaviors or activities that not everyone does, I think that we should put time in green space or nature, physical activity, hanging out with friends, and um, what we'll call some sort of low-stress task switch. And we'll explain what, what that means when we get into it. Is there anything I'm missing, Steve? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that, I mean, you can throw hydration in with eating. Let's throw it in with eating. Good idea. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think that covers it on the other tasks. Okay. So I'll, I'll go over those first two pretty briefly even though they could each have their own episode. So sleep, it's quite well known that 99% of people need between seven and nine hours of sleep. Uh, there is about 1% of people that have a genetic abnormality where they can sleep less. They're called short sleepers and be absolutely fine. A lot of people might think that that's them, but given how probability works, if it's just 1% of people, it's probably not you. So seven to nine hours of sleep. Um, we've done an episode on sleep in the past that we can link to in the show notes if you want to get the deep dive there. Uh, I think what I'll say here is that the most important things when it comes to sleep are having some exposure to sunlight during the day, ideally in the morning, having some sort of physical activity in your day, um, having a nice cool room and trying to shut down stimulus, both psychological and biological, uh, in the hours approaching bed. So biological, that means caffeine, other stimulants, exercise. Psychological, that means things that are going to make your mind race. So probably not great to be answering high-priority emails right before you go to bed. So that's sleep, seven to nine hours. On eating, we're not going to get into it too much because we're not registered dietitians or nutritionists um, beyond saying that there's pretty good consensus that there are multiple roads to Rome, meaning different ways to eat that all work out fine. What they all share in common is that they all avoid highly processed foods. 
So what we mean by highly processed foods are those that are engineered to be shelf stable for quite a long time and often have lots of added fat, sugars, and salt. So there's a difference between canned beets or canned beans and a bag of chips. The, they're both processed, but we'd only consider the latter to be highly processed. And the last thing I'll say on sleeping and eating is that uh, you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good or even get in the way of good. So our first rule of sleeping and of eating is do the best that you can to nail it. Our second rule is if circumstances in life happens and you can't, don't freak out. Uh, there are definitely days where I sleep under six hours because I have a young kid. I try not to make that the norm, but when it happens, I just say, all right, I might not feel great today, but I can still show up and not make a habit out of it. And same thing with food. I do what I can to eat whole foods, but when I'm traveling, uh, I often eat a fair amount of highly processed foods and it's not the end of the world. And I think that uh, you can do a lot of harm freaking out about this stuff. So in general, sleep seven to nine hours, take care of your sleep hygiene, try to avoid highly processed foods. Um, and uh, and that's it. I guess the one other thing I'll say on nutrition is that um, there is some research that shows that large meals can have a fatiguing effect. Uh, the mechanism behind that is still up for debate. Lots of folks speculate that it has to do with blood flow to the gut. So if like you eat a big meal, your digestive system has to work a lot. There's a lot of blood flow to the gut. It can be fatiguing. It takes a lot of energy to process all that food. Another hypothesis has to do with certain chemicals in food. You often hear about tryptophan, the chemical in, uh, in, in Turkey that can make you fatigued. Um, not all people have this effect, but some do. So I think there it's worth being aware of, do large meals make you really fatigued? And if so, then you probably want to think about timing your meals so that your large meals are towards the end of the day. Um, and throughout the day, maybe you're having smaller meals so you stay highly energized. But there's a lot of nuance here, too, because for other people, having a large dinner prevents them from falling asleep well. So, again, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. Anyone that says that there's this highly specific right way is talking out of their you-know-what. Uh, it's really just about avoiding those highly processed foods and then figuring out what works best for you in terms of energy levels throughout the day as they relate to eating. Yeah, there's two things that I'd add. Uh, one is whenever we talk about sleep, people often ask about naps. And naps can be a, uh, a great way to enhance this kind of rest and restore restoration. What most of the research shows, though, is that short naps are tend to be better because you don't get it. Once you go into long naps, you're going to either um, this wake up in the middle of a deep sleep cycle, which leads you to kind of feel groggy. And there's this idea of called sleep inertia, which essentially means that it takes a while to get back your kind of arousal levels back to normal. So all sorts of research shows that anywhere from a 10 to 20 minute nap works really well. In fact, there was one study that showed a, a 20 minute nap was more effective in terms of uh, creating alertness than a grande coffee from Starbucks. So if you always reach for that caffeine, maybe try a short nap. And there's also some interesting research that shows that even if you don't quote unquote fall asleep for 15, 20 minutes, just the eyes closed for that amount will give you some sort of restoration. 
and increase in alertness afterwards. So I think, you know, often people tell like, well, I don't have time for naps or what have you. But, you know, just having something short like that in the in your uh, back pocket to use in certain situations can be highly beneficial. And then the other thing that we said we talk about in terms of eating is this idea of hydration. And like with diet, nutrition, there's a lot of junk out there on hydration. All I would say is if you look at, again, the research, I remember reading a study not too long ago that took a random sampling of um, kids and teens and found that 50 plus percent of them were uh, dehydrated based on a urine specific gravity test, which is about the most accurate way we can measure it. So most of us probably are walking around a little bit underhydrated, and that can have some negative effects. You might not notice it if it's minor. In fact, you probably won't notice it if it's minor and you don't do anything physically challenging. If you were walking around a little dehydrated and I want ask you to go out the door and run in Houston, Texas, you would notice it. So what do we do about it? It's pretty simple. Drink more water. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you can get we can get fancy and talk about like hydration and electrolytes, but the reality is is this is that most of that stuff doesn't matter nearly enough or nearly that much unless we're talking you're going out and training for a marathon or something like that where you're actually having that physical bout um, kind of challenge. For most of us, it's as simple as drinking water, and if you do that, you're gonna be in a good spot. Yeah, you'll get those electrolytes from your diet, um, particularly the important ones, right? Sodium, potassium, magnesium, if you're eating a, a well-rounded diet or a diet that includes fortified foods. Uh, I think that in the context, again, of um, of recovery for work that mainly involves your mind, not your body, I personally like to err on the side of being a little bit overhydrated because you're not going to get hyponatremia, which is when your electrolytes get so thrown off because you're way overhydrated with water, like no knowledge worker is going to drink themselves to death. I shouldn't say no, but um, it's hard to imagine that could happen. Uh, but what being a little overhydrated will do is it will also force you to get up and go to the bathroom to pee quite a bit throughout the day. And um, we know that those short walks are really good for your body. So you're not sitting for more than two hours consecutively, but also for your mind, because those little breaks throughout the day give your mind a chance to recover, task switch a bit. This is why the best thing that you can do when you're stuck trying to write the perfect sentence, solve a problem, uh, figure out the best presentation style is to actually get up from your desk and, and take a little walk around the office or outside. Uh, so if you're drinking a lot of water, you got to get up and pee pretty frequently. All right. So that's a good transition to task switching because I put these like short little walks under the umbrella of task switching. So I'll quickly define it. And then Steve, I'll let you give some examples. Task switching is exactly what it sounds like. You're doing thing X for a period of time, and then you shift to thing Y. And ideally thing Y uses a very different part of your brain. So you are focused on building a financial model or writing a chapter of your book. That is really effortful, conscious, cognitive load is high kind of thinking. Task switching could be listening to music. It's the more emotional, artistic side of your brain. It could be taking that short walk. Suddenly you're engaging motor regions in your brain. Um, those are the two kind of go-tos that I come up with. I'm sure there are more. But what task switching wouldn't be is it wouldn't be from 
you know, writing a really tough memo or chapter of a book and then moving like directly into writing something else. It's got to be something that is, is, is substantive, substantially different. Yeah. The things that I'd add on there, and this is where, you know, I think what we, I previously talked about is getting up and going for a walk really helps is because essentially what you're doing is you're putting your mind on a motor task, essentially one that it knows how to do and is ingrained. So it lets kind of that creative mind, that subconscious take over. And if you don't feel like going for a walk or going out in nature, like we talked about, there's other things you can do. So this is where I think moving from a compu- like computer work to maybe whiteboard work or notebook work, where you're just kind of, um, I'll call it doodling, but like trying to make sense of and break down things and not just uh, on your computer, either typing or thinking or whatever have you really works well as well. So switching the task to some other and, you know, utilizing your environment can be really helpful for conceptualizing task switching. So the way I like to think about it is if I've been sitting at my computer doing something, writing, responding to emails, what have you, task switching to me often involves moving in my environment and doing something else. As I said, that could be going to the whiteboard. It could be getting up and going outside with a a little notebook that I carry on a walk. Could be any number of things, but you're essentially getting your mind to get off of the narrow, which is the narrow is the deep focus work and to get out and go broad. And there's some wonderful research that shows that we can kind of prime this as well with environmental switching, but also switching our focus. So wonderful research, again, that shows that when we're narrowly focused on our a task, our creativity goes down because it's almost like our brain says, oh, we've got to be in like almost a deep focused mathematical rational mind here. But when we zoom out and shift our focus to either something broad, like going outside, whatever, looking at trees, being in nature, or whatever have you, anything that will zoom our mind back out, it activates that creative side of our brain where instead of the narrow, we kind of see the broad and we see the whole picture. So that's how I kind of conceptualize task switching is think of shifting your focus and then also shifting your environment. And the one that I often... um... I often get asked about just as, as a writer is my experience between switching between writing and reading. And I actually find that it doesn't feel like enough of a switch. Like it still is using that same muscle and that's the muscle that deals with language and making sense of words and, and using words to make sense. Um, so I often will not write and read back to back. I won't consider that a task switch. I'll tend to do some kind of um, short little stint of movement in there or listening to music um, or responding to mindless emails. I mean, that can be a task switch for 20 minutes because it's not really requiring any deep, deep, effortful thinking. Now, you're still staring at a screen. You're still in that work environment. So it's not ideal, uh, but it, it does the job well enough in a lot of circumstances. So I think ideal is these short walks, the ability to go outside, some nature, Expose yourself to some sort of art. Again, listening to music is a good one. Just closing your eyes for a bit, as Steve mentioned earlier. 
Um, those are all really good kind of micro breaks throughout the day, uh, task switches. So, oh, go ahead, Steve. It looks like you're going to add one more thing to this topic or am I wrong? No, I, well, I can. I was just going to say there was actually a, a very recent study that found looking at art online for three minutes served as like a restorative activity and actually increased happiness and well-being. So a lot of times we're sitting here saying like, go outside, go outside. Well, if you're stuck in an office building, like sometimes that's not a case. So even something as simple as looking at art online or looking at a beautiful, you know, photos from nature, I'm not giving you excuses to go on Instagram and scroll unless maybe it's all nature. Then, then this might be the point of Instagram. Um, but you can do those things and no, they won't be as, as good as getting out and seeing the real world, but they do have the same kind of restorative effect. So if that's all you got, use it. All right. So the next uh, modality is physical activity. And if you're an athlete, you don't necessarily want to do a hard workout to recover. You're recovering from a hard workout. But if you tend to exert most of your effort using your mind, if you work in a more traditional workplace, if you're a knowledge worker, then physical activity is one of the best ways to let your brain recover from effortful cognitive work. Uh, again, this is an area that is so freaking complex. This is why the, the, the exercise pill doesn't exist, because the benefits of exercise are so multifactorial. Um, the best that we can do is the research driven theories as to why this is the case. And, um, there are three big predominant ones. Uh, at least I would think of them as the big three, Steve, I'd be curious if you have any others. Uh, the first theory is that when you exercise, you're getting more blood flow to your brain. Um, and you're getting more oxygen up in your brain. And it is very, very important and good for you to do that in terms of recovery. Uh, this theory also foots to um, the negative correlation between exercise and stroke. So more and more neurologists are starting to think of having strokes as actually a cardiovascular disease because the amount of blood getting to the brain just isn't enough. So there's the blood to the brain hypothesis. The other hypothesis that is worth mentioning is the motor control motor neuron hypothesis, which Steve alluded to. You're just using such a different part of your brain uh, when you're moving that it requires the rest of your brain to kind of shut off. Uh, the brain doesn't operate completely zero sum, but we do know that when certain uh, neural circuits are wiring, others can't. So perhaps exercise has like a inhibitory effect on your effortful thinking because you got to use brain power to coordinate your movements. And um, the, the third reason that people speculate has something to do with the hormones and biochemicals that are actually released from the muscles and how those impact your brain. And it could be all of these things contributing in some way. That's probably my, my most likely guess. Uh, and then worth looping in with number two, I'd call it like the same kind of uh, changing the actual state of the electrical firing in your brain is this notion that when you're doing like a somewhat hard workout, that's not easy enough for you to think about something else, but that's not so hard that you can't think at all. 
you can get into this nice kind of flow state where thoughts are just popping in and out of your brain. And it's almost like you're, you're lucid dreaming and you have no control over what those thoughts are. It's like they're coming from your subconscious. And um, again, my hypothesis there is that your brain is distracted enough from conscious effortful thinking, but it's not so distracted that it can't think at all. Uh, so I put it under those three big categories, blood flow to the brain, chemical secretion from the muscles and hormones to the brain, and then this turning off our normal neural circuitry in favor of a different type. Yeah, so this, this is where it's all connected and we can categorize it, but the reality is it's all mixed together. One other thing that I think is mit- worth mentioning here is you can look at exercise's effect on, um, uh, on stress responses. And we know that easy, slow exercise or just movement often can shift us from that kind of fight or flight to kind of rest and restore. Um, kind of shift us from a sympathetic nervous system arousal to more parasympathetic arousal. And the other thing that is interesting is easy exercise. Again, what you see is you often get a decrease in cortisol levels, which is one of the main kind of lingering stress hormones, which isn't good or bad, but it just lingers and can cause, um, cause mental fatigue over, over a long haul and easy exercise essentially like reduces or utilizes that so it it goes away high intensity exercise increases stress and uh cortisol so it often can you know backfire in that degree but point being easy exercise can be very mentally and physically restorative now what does easy exercise mean well i think this is often where people get it wrong is that um i like to keep it simple and that it's something where you can go outside and be able to talk and have a full-on conversation. And if you can do that, you're easy enough where you're almost certainly going to have some sort of restorative effects. Now, as you move into the moderate intensities, it can kind of go either way. As Brad said, sometimes that can be a little restorative because it keeps you you know, focused enough on the activity while not being hard enough to cause you to feel stressed or um, you know, accumulate fatigue. Um, but there again is if you can't in those moderate intensities say a sentence or two, then you're going too hard. So keep it easy for some people. And again, I like to point out there's a large degree of individuality on this. So for some people, keeping it easy means going for a walk. For other people, keeping it easy could mean going for a, gosh, a 10, 15 mile, like slow, easy run. And that slow, easy run could be seven minute pace for someone who's fit. So a lot of individuality on this. And then the last thing I'd add is you also, which maybe brings us into the next point, you can also take advantage of this by going on an easy walk or jog or cycle, whatever it is with a friend and have conversations on it. And you almost get a, a, an added benefit of not only the easy movement, but also easy, natural, flowing conversation that, again, isn't threatening or whatever have you because you're just out on a run or out on a bike ride with somebody. Love it. All right. So um, what we've come to call social recovery, which is just a fancy, sciencey name for hanging out with friends is the next modality that we'll address. And um, man, it's so simple, but also when you think about it, pretty profound. Uh, we evolved 
in tribes. And that is overblown a lot for like what it means about violence and tribalism. But uh, something that is very true about it is that if you were a very early human or Neanderthal or somewhere before that split and you were out on your own, you had a lot less chance of survival. You didn't have people to share food with when there was a famine. You didn't have people to help fend off of predators. As a result, your stress levels were high. You didn't sleep because if you fall asleep, you could get picked off by a lion or a tiger. You constantly were worried about where your next meal is going to come from because if you couldn't find it, there's no one to share with. So it feels really good for us to be in groups. And evolution has prioritized the groupness of humans. So when you're really stressed, when you've been working really hard and stress levels are high, in the modern world, well, that's kind of akin to being out alone on the savanna, fending for yourself. So what do you do? You reach out to somebody and you spend some time with someone else. Um, we could go on and on about the mechanisms and the hormonal changes that happen with oxytocin and testosterone and so on and so forth. But the big applied so what thing is that simply being in the presence of other people, not staring at your phones, um, not necessarily working on your work together, but just hanging out is a really invigorating way to recover and to come back to uh, whatever you're working on in a fresher, more alert and grounded state. Yep. And again, a lot of this research comes back to, well, it takes us out of kind of stressed and high cortisol and puts us in a state that is more, you know, restorative and, and back to normal. So social recovery is like one of the best ways you can, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, whatever, how am I going to handle this presentation or how am I going to handle losing this game or whatever happened? Like talking with others is one of the best ways to do it. One caveat I would say is that if you talk with people who are quote unquote threatening, maybe a boss you're afraid of or a stranger you don't know well after a tough loss, it's not going to be restorative. So it literally is like, you know, shooting the shit with your friends or family members or people who you know uh, well and people who you don't see as threats. So make sure you're, you're, you're uh, debriefing and decompressing with the right people. And then you opened up by mentioning nature. So I don't think that we need to go into that anymore other than spending time in nature is great uh, because, again, it softens your gaze and it seems to lower the, the stress response. The biologist E.O. Wilson uh, called this the biophilia effect, and it's that we evolved to be out in nature and not to be constantly bombarded by loud noises and flashing lights and the urban stimulus that many of us now live in. So getting back to nature feels really good. And we get all sorts of biochemical changes as a result. So we've gone through a lot. And I think that it's probably worth stepping back and realizing how actually easy this is. So what does the ideal week look like? knowing that perfect can be the enemy of good. So for me, here we go. If I can get over eight hours of sleep, of pretty good quality sleep, or maybe I'm only waking up once or twice in the middle of the night for just a little while, five or six nights a week, that's great. 
And on the night I don't, I just don't worry about it. I say, all right, it's a bad night of sleep. So let's say five nights or more, eight hours of sleep. Most meals, you're avoiding highly processed foods. If you're traveling, don't worry about it. Nothing wrong with having a Cliff Bar or a sports drink if you're training really hard or a bag of chips. But on the whole, you know, looking to avoid high processed foods, great. Then you've nailed those basics. We're also going to drink a lot, right? We're just going to have a water bottle near us. We're drinking, we're peeing, pretty simple. Then if I'm training five days a week, those are kind of hard workouts. I don't necessarily look at those as restorative. I'm doing that um, because I have sports goals. The restorative walk work is like the 20 minute walk with the dog in between blocks of deep work or the 45 minute walk at the end of the day, nice and slow, not really doing it for a physical benefit. It's just to allow my mind to decompress and calm down. Uh, ideally I'm doing that outside. Maybe two times a month, I want to get up to the mountains for like a three hour half day hike out in nature, no devices, just really spend time in nature, decompress. And then ideally at least once a week, if not twice a week, I'm in some sort of social situation that's not just my partner, Caitlin, and, and my son, Theo, but with friends just hanging out. And that's pretty much it. If I'm doing that, you know, I think recovery is going to flow really nicely. I think the one thing that I have to add is how much time am I spending checking my phone, checking my email, checking social media. And the more checking just throughout the day, throughout the week, the less recovered I feel. So I think a big part of this is actually during these recovery activities, making sure that the phone gets left behind. So when you're out on that walk, when you're exercising with your friends, um, when you're shutting down for the night to go to sleep, not being engaged in the treadmill of notifications, whether they relate to work or personal life, because it's exhausting. Yep, mine doesn't look too different. One thing that came to mind that I think is worth talking about, because whenever we've talked about this before, this has come up, is people ask social recovery and they say, well, I'm an extreme introvert. Like, does that still apply? And I've said, yes, it does apply as long as it's people you want to be around. Where introvert, you know, um, might not, this might not apply if it's a big setting, right? Or a party or a big get together where you don't feel comfortable around people, then that social effect is it going to cause you to recover? So you might need more smaller, intimate gatherings with people you actually, you know, like and care about. Well, as an extrovert might feel filled up by some of those bigger get togethers. So that is a addition that's worth uh, considering. And I think on that note, what that means for all of this is, is very individualized. So the way I kind of look at it is I kind of just look at the things I'm doing throughout the day and say, is this kind of filling me up or is this kind of draining me? And it's not that the, the draining me is bad. It's just I want to have my energy drained in things that actually matter and things that I actually care about. So it's no different than, you know, to use the physical analogy, it's no different than saying I want to do a hard workout. It is not going to leave me feeling better. It's, it's going to drain me. But this hard workout is important. So I'm going to I'm going to use my energy there. So to Brad's point, I'm going to try not to use my energy on mindless things like scrolling on 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 the, on my phone or what have you, although it occurs, because that's just draining my energy for nothing productive. And I guess the other things that I think are important is throughout my day, is if I can, is I try to make sure I either have some micro breaks, which we kind of talked about, 
in between maybe deep focused work where it's just like I have, you know, a couple minutes to just kind of sometimes close my eyes, sometimes decompress, sometimes get up, um, knowing that I'm going to have a lot of hard focused work uh, to do that day. And I just try and set my schedule up accordingly. And if I do that, I'm in a good spot. And then the last thing I'd say as well to practically for my schedule is I try to know when I'm, I'm, I'm losing focus and I'm losing steam. So if I'm sitting there and I've been writing for an hour and I'm just losing it, even though I said, Hey, I'm going to go an hour and a half today of writing focus. I'll just stop in that moment and take a break and go for a walk or what have you. So similar to a physical exercise, I need to know when I'm going into the well and it's time for a rest break or an interval break before I get back at it. Love it. All right. Well, you noticed that what we didn't talk about are any kind of energy drinks or supplements or specific mattresses or sheets or cold plunge tanks or hot saunas um, because that stuff is the 0.01% really to the negative 50% because some of that stuff can do a lot of harm if used inappropriately or, um, or, or with false promises. Uh, but this really is just about creating a lifestyle and some good basic habits where you're balancing stress with rest. And as Steve said, you're making sure that the rest periods are truly restful and that the stress periods are, are truly effortful and focused on the, the things that matter. Uh, so with that, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review, share it with a friend. And um, you want to support us more and learn more about these topics, check out our books, The Practice of Groundedness and Do Hard Things. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, the one and only Chris Douglas, the COO of The Growth Equation. And then also to our sound editor, John at Bears Records. So thank y'all. We appreciate you, Chris. We appreciate you, John. And we appreciate all our listeners. Mm -hmm.